Welcome everyone to this afternoon session. This session is about priorities for the euro area. And as we know, there have been a lot of reforms in recent years. Let me mention just a few of them. I mean, the banking union, I think, was the most important or most significant institutional change in the European Union since the creation of the euro. We know it's not complete yet, but at least uh, it's up and running and functioning. There have been a lot of efforts have been made to coordinate more economic and other policies, including the creation of this half yearly or annual uh, um, <clears throat> session of, of the European semester, which runs for half a year in each year, which aims to coordinate and advise countries on various kinds of policies. There were a lot of crisis management facilities created, including the permanent European stability mechanism. The ECB has stepped up its roles uh, and indeed did whatever it could, to, could take to, to save the euro. So a lot of uh, efforts have been made and a lot of institutional changes have been made in the, in the past decade of, of the euro. Yet, I think we can still say that the, the euro area is still incomplete and there are very different views about how serious the situation at the moment, whether with its current institutional architecture, the euro will not just survive, but also be prosper, or on the contrary, the euro is still suffers from such major institutional fragilities that the next downturn on crisis might be as severe as the previous one, which might also risk the existence of the euro. And these are the topics we would like to discuss today, and I am really honored and, and pleasured. Uh, it's a great honor and pleasure to have four really distinguished uh, colleagues with me. Uh, let me introduce them alphabetically. Lawrence Bone who is the chief economist of the OECD since last year, I believe. But before that, she was the chief economist of many other institutions. And in fact, you also worked at the OECD earlier, I, I think. <clears throat> then we have Vitor Constancio, who returned to the academia in, in Lisbon. But before, uh, he was the vice president of the ECB and the governor of the, of the Central Bank of, of, uh, of Portugal. We have Asho Kamudi, who is currently a visiting professor uh, at Princeton University and also has an affiliation with Bruegel and he had a very long career at the International Monetary Fund and he has just recently published a book on the Euro tragedy which I think was a very successful and very critical book at the same time. Maybe the success was due to its critical nature. We will learn hopefully this afternoon. And last but not least we have, we have Thomas Wieser <coughs> And we are very pleased that he is now a fellow at Bruegel. But we heard before that he had many, many positions, including the president of the, of the Euro Working Group of the Economic and Financial Committee for, for long and many other positions in, in Austria. So I think we have, and also let me introduce myself, I'm sorry, I'm Joel Darvas, a senior fellow at Bruegel. So I think we have a great team here to discuss uh, the issue of, of the current state uh, of the euro area and its, its future prospects. And what I ask the panelists not to prepare long initial speeches, 
but instead we will try to uh, discuss the issues through a couple of shorter questions and, and shorter answers. And I hope to have a very uh, interactive and dynamic discussion. And also I would like to open the floor uh, for giving sufficient time for all of you uh, to make uh, comments and ask, ask questions. So um, we start with Lawrence and the, the very first question is very simple is that, uh, what do you think, how complete is the current state of the, of, the, of the Euralia? Again, I would like to separate the analysis of the current situation, in maybe in the first part of our discussion, and the second part of our discussion then, what are the current proposals, how good they are, what else should be done, and what are the prospects for the future? But let's start for the assessment of the status quo. So, Lawrence, the floor is yours. Thanks, uh, thanks, Walt, and it's, it's a pleasure to be here. There is one European institution that kept on expanding, consolidating and growing, and it's Bruegel, and it's annual event just after the summer when we're all still very happy and enthusiastic. So thanks for the invitation. Um, so obviously this is a tremendously difficult question, but um, and I think we should, we should start from the fact that there has been immense progress when we look today versus 2011, when I was on financial market, and I can tell you there were questions about the survival of the euro itself. So the lot has, has been done, um, and we can look at things from the four policy elements of EMU architecture. Monetary, fiscal, financial, and structural. And let me start, uh, I, I will review each of them very rapidly, and then highlight one common thread and explain where I think we are. And it will be short, don't worry. Uh, on the structural, I think it's fair to say that progress has been mixed. Um, if we look at the decade since the crisis, southern countries have done a lot in terms of improved wage competitiveness, and that's reflected in the collapse of their current account deficit. Um, the same is not symmetric in the north, so let's say it's mixed. On the monetary side, I share what you were saying earlier. It's been amazing, right? Uh, if you look back 10 years ago, uh, first, there has been plenty of liquidity and the role of lender of last resort was well fulfilled. Second, the euro is still here with as many country members uh, as before. There's been no deflation, which we all feared. Um, the output gap's pretty closed, and inflation's moderate, perhaps you could say a little too moderate. Then on the fiscal side, rules, we could say that they've been sensible in the sense that they have, let's say the situation would have been worse if they had not existed. We had one, one crisis at least, and, but uh, we had overall something that hold up, but we could also say that they've not been effective um, because during the crisis, we didn't have the appropriate fiscal stance for the Eurozone, uh, and perhaps today a question mark is whether we're in the right fiscal framework. And then there is financial policy. Um, obviously, it didn't exist when we got into the crisis at the European level, or barely. 
Uh, and there you could say that the launch of the banking union and the launch of capital market union have been big steps ahead, but you could also say that they have stalled. And it's quite a while since 2012, I think, where progress have not been, uh, not been made. Now, once we've gone through these four elements, what's, what's the common thread? I think it's institution. And institution is the main, if one of the main, if not the main variable, explaining the differences um, to, this, to this policy element. If you start from monetary this time, then we have one institution which speaks for the whole of the Eurozone. And it can respond timely and massively. And it did so. Uh, there were, not everything was perfect, but it's been there and it's been timely. If you look at fiscal, I think Thomas done a tremendous job and we should all be uh, very admirative and it's a very humble economist who says that there has been some coordination, but there's also been some struggle. We cannot deny that there has been a crisis and that we have an issue today. We have an issue that if the rules are being reformed, they're not appropriate when we are entering a world where we are probably closer to secular stagnation than violent cyclical movement. And if we enter worlds when growth is slowing down because of secular changes in trade policy or energy or uh, digitalization, then we need a fiscal framework that will support investment. Investment today to prevent growth from continuing to slide and investment for the economy of tomorrow. We need to leapfrog from the 21st century to the next digital energy clean century. And we haven't got the institution for that. The other thing when we look at institution is financial. It's more fragmented than for fiscal. In fact, there is an allocation of responsibilities which leaves a lot to national supervision and a lot to national implementation of common rules and regulation, and that's not helping the banking union or the capital market union to progress. And I think it has a lot to do with the way that the setup is being done with very much, uh, with a lot of decentralization. And then structural, then here institution is even a lot loser in the sense that we are simply talking about very soft coordination. And most of it is at the national level. And you can see that there, the results for them to be symmetric and act in the, for the benefit of the whole Eurozone, there's no really proper institutional framework. So to conclude, that's what I would say. It's been an amazing journey given what we've, you know, the, the seas and the waters on which uh, the euro has navigated, but there's quite, quite a lot of progress, more to be done on the institutional side. Thank you very much. Let me have a very quick, in less than one minute, follow-up question, because you were using the word amazing for, for monetary uh, policy of the, of, the, of the ECB, but I think you gave a presentation in Sintra recently when you were critical and saying that the real monetary stimulus came too late. So how do you see the liquidity provision, financial stability type of 
actions of the ECB, but, but I would more interested in the monetary uh, macroeconomic stimulus issue. Okay, so that's a good question, and, um, and since I can dive a little more into this, I, I will answer. First, I, did, yeah, I didn't say it was amazing to make Vitor blush, let's be clear. <laughs> I did say it because I think at the end of the day, monetary policy did an amazing job, where institutions also contributed to actually uh, delay the appropriate response, I think, is in the way that the central bank had to look for consensus and also to make sure, so it's within the ECB and you know that you know, there were discussions and dissensions with the involvement of some uh, court of justice, uh, so it's difficult, I guess, to reach a consensus when you start from, from this situation. And also, if you look at the US, there was, as we know, in the US, one fiscal treasury. In Europe, you have 19 euro treasuries, and the discussion that's necessary during a crisis is longer. So I think it's, again, partly institutional, partly because of learning to build up a consensus within the ECB that there was some delay in moving into QE. Uh, and then it's also fair to say that there were some policy mistakes in 2011 when we hiked rates, uh, which had to do with the assessment of the economic situation. But it's always easier to say with the benefit of insight. Thanks very much. Now, Vitor, let me turn to you. So, how do you see the completeness of the euro area? And you could also comment the ECB monetary policy if you wish. Well, thank, thank you, and thank you for uh, inviting me to be here in this uh, excellent uh, panel. As you said, and uh, Lawrence said too, there were many reforms since the beginning of a monetary union, uh, which uh, completed uh, missing parts of um, appropriate concept of what a monetary union is. But we have to recognize that the initial concept, the initial design was too narrow, uh, and many things were missing from the start. Well, it was partly due to the macroeconomic thinking of the time uh, that this narrow concept uh, came up, but also it coincided very much with the views of uh, um, uh, or the liberalism in Central Europe. There was, for a moment, more than a decade, a sort of coincidence of economic thought in that respect, with the idea that monetary policy in itself, and exclusively dedicated to a price stability target, would be enough to ensure at the same time both macroeconomic stability and financial stability. That would be enough. That was the thinking. Also combined, of course, with the idea, which was common in macroeconomics at the time, that the financial sector per se was self-equilibrating and would not generate uh, uh, real economic fluctuations uh, because it was not in the basic macro views and macro models of the time. So the crisis exposed, of course, all these uh, narrow concepts. And now, looking back with insight and thinking about what uh, monetary union implies, and the main thing that implies and was missed from the start, it is that it triggers a huge financial integration. Uh, the monetary union per se. 
which increases interdependencies, spillovers, contagion uh, uh, among the member countries uh, that require policies to address, to address that. So, if we uh, look back, I can list five missing things at the beginning, uh, which, as I said, several have been covered. Well, the first one was the absence of crisis management and uh, any sort of uh, uh, foreseen uh, financial assistance to member countries. That was not uh, in the initial concept. It came later with the ESM and with the crisis, and that part we can consider it has been done. The second missing thing was that it was not foreseen that uh, uh, interventions in the bond market to uh, stabilize it and to address two types of things, either uh, liquidity squeezes, pure liquidity uh, crisis issues, or impairment of transmission of monetary, of the single monetary policy to all the parts of the monetary union. And uh, this was not uh, uh, seen or foreseen in the initial design. And that had to be covered by the ECB stepping up uh, and uh, indeed adopting policies that were then challenged, as we know, in several countries and courts and all of that, with the end result that uh, indeed these uh, courts uh, in the end uh, agreed that the policies pursued by the ECB were legal and according to the uh, treaty. So we, I am also assuming that this part perhaps is now accepted, that the ECB has the powers and the competences to do these responses to liquidity crisis and to impairments of transmission of monetary policy and that interventions in financial markets are then appropriate and legal. So I assume that is solved, still challenged in some parts. The third thing uh, uh, that uh, was missing, and, and is still missing, is no uh, macroeconomic management of the uh, space of monetary union was foreseen. No concept of a macroeconomic policy mix as something necessary for the space of monetary union. So there was uh, deep integration in the monetary field, but of course not in the fiscal uh, policy area. No uh, concept that stabilization policies implying the appropriate policy mix for the whole area were needed. And there is still a deficiency in what regards macroeconomic management at the level of the uh, Euro, uh, European uh, uh, Monetary Union space. Um, fourth, the fourth thing that was missing was also the uh, requirement that came evident with the crisis that the financial integration triggered by Monetary Union required micro and macro supervision of the financial system at the European level. And then came later, and still is being built up. The fifth thing, it's not so significant as these four that I listed, uh, but is just a missed opportunity. 
there was no idea that monetary union would uh, facilitate, imply, and in the end also require capital markets union. That this link was not perceived as an important link. Uh, and so we are uh, indeed in Europe uh, suffering from a big waste that we did the monetary union, which is a very difficult thing to do, to share monetary sovereignty, and we are not reaping the advantage of having more integrated capital markets. So, and that is also... Uh, uh, so, this, uh, uh, this is my general answer. Details to come. Yes, I will be especially interested to hear your views on the, on the third point, not now, but maybe in the next round, when you mentioned that still we mix a, a more macro yeah. policy mix whereby not just monetary but fiscal and other policies are, are managed together. But let me now turn to Thomas uh, and ask a, a similar question, uh, but you could, you could also comment on, on this how this very special institutional nature in, in the Eurozone, whereby we have basically currently 19 separate countries uh, with independent national parliaments and independent constitutional systems, but on the other hand, they are sharing the same currency, and uh, uh, how can they work together, how can they coordinate together, how well this is currently organized? Thanks very much. I think it's very easy to design a uh, monetary uh, union that works perfectly, uh, especially if you start from scratch, uh, i.e. having no country, and then you build up every country uh, by itself. Or you take the United States, where thanks to 200 years of integration and all of the bumps they had on the road and, and crisis they had on the road evolved with one central budget and uh, the FDIC and the Fed, etc., etc. So I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the realities that we have uh, in, uh, in, in the Euro area, uh, and especially from the point of view of institutions versus rules. And I think Mario Draghi fairly often made this distinction, uh, rules versus institutions. And if you have, do not have the central institution, we're talking about monetary policy, then you need rules. So if we look at the four uh, uh, policy areas uh, that Laurence was mentioning in the field of monetary uh, policy, everything clear, institution, duck. Uh, sovereignty uh, was transferred from the, all member states will be uh, miffed if I said from the periphery, but voila, that's the periphery, uh, from the periphery uh, to the center and uh, that's it. Financial, comme ci, comme ça. Uh, there was a certain element of sovereignty sharing which uh, uh, resulted uh, in the creation of the uh, single supervisory mechanism. Uh, there was a certain element of sovereignty sharing in the setting up of the single resolution board and the single resolution fund, uh, but it is an incomplete sharing uh, of sovereignty. And it is mixed and uh, with a large degree uh, of national uh, discretion, uh, either voluntary or involuntary, seen uh, from Frankfurt or from uh, Brussels. So the big question is, uh, if you have not had a complete centralized institution uh, with, a trans with a constitutional transfer of power to the center, 
Are the 19 member states willing to have their national financial institutions, to have their financial institutions supervised, maybe yes, maybe no, or resolved by outsiders, by non-nationals? And so far, I'd say uh, our experience has been not so superb. There has been the resolution, true resolution of one Spanish bank, uh, about which I could talk not as long uh, as Vito, but uh, at, at a certain length. And the attempts to resolve other banks, especially in Italy, uh, ended uh, in them being wound down or uh, according to national uh, legislation in a manner uh, which, contrary to the intentions of bank resolution, recovery and resolution, uh, were, were done more at the expense of the taxpayer. So uh, there is an element, and there are lots of studies by the Commission and others that everything was in agreement and in accordance with European rules, but a uh, discuté. So uh, this is an area uh, where we still uh, are forced to follow European rules, uh, and the question is, what happens if member states or other actors do not follow the rules? However, this is even more forcefully the case in the fiscal area. And Vito was talking about the absence of a decent macroeconomic policy mix. Laurence was talking uh, about uh, the wrong fiscal stance. Now, Quite obviously, we do not have a fiscal institution. We have 19 fiscal institutions, otherwise, uh, if you look at the constitutions, otherwise known as 19 national parliaments. There is absolute national sovereignty and autonomy uh, on nas 19 national fiscal policies, and that's what we see in everyday life. Absent an institution, we've got rules. Uh, these rules are known, unfortunately, as the Stability and Growth Pact, um, and uh, the manual, I think, has been shortened down from 130 to 105 pages or something like that. There is one person who really understands it, he's not in the room. Uh, the other hundreds of thousand people understand parts of it. But why do we have the rules? Because we don't have an institution. How do we produce, what do we do if somebody goes against the rules, they say, oh, we open the treaty, uh, and under the 12th step of the procedure, we find them like hell. No. Uh, for the last 24 years, I've been uh, reading that, uh, and uh, to all of our knowledge, this has never happened. So how, and I think we all recognize how important it is uh, to have an intelligent fiscal policy that interacts intelligently with monetary policy, an intelligent fiscal policy uh, that is growth-promoting, etc., etc. How do we force countries to do that? We can't. A fortiori, how do we force countries to contribute to a decent fiscal stance, whatever that may be? And in the past, we have usually said the euro area has the correct fiscal stance. Unfortunately, its composition is totally wrong. Uh, the ones with the low debt uh, are not spending enough, and the ones with the high debt are spending too much. So we need to think uh, of the future 
in the medium term of the euro area in these terms. There will not be a shift of constitutional power of major proportions to a central institution. If that is not the case, rules remain the rule of the game. How do we deal with a Europe uh, with 19 separate constitutional sovereignties with the need for respect of rules, especially if they should be flexible in order to be intelligent? What does that say for the role of a political or non-political commission? And how can we ensure an optimal outcome on that? So I leave that for dinner, but uh, the, these are indeed, if we look at what is going to concern us over the next five or 10 years, this is the question. So I will not bewail uh, the lack of this, that, or the other. I think this is the central political question. Thank you very much, Thomas. But I hope we can discuss issues not just at the dinner, but also maybe in a second and, and, and third round. No, 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 but it was a perfect, perfect introduction and perfectly provocative, I think, and, and thought-provoking introduction. So we will come back to that issue, but let me now come to Ashoka. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think it's on. So given all the realities that also Thomas mentioned that we have, you know, 19 sovereign states sharing some sovereignty in certain areas, much less in others, especially very little in, in fiscal, uh, and given also the tremendous efforts that have been made to complete whatever is possible to complete in the euro area, how do you see the, the current status of the euro area? Is it? Yeah, so uh, uh, thank you very much, Zoe, for having me. I don't know, I saw Guntram. Uh, I also want to thank Guntram for giving me a home here at Bruegel for many years. Um, so in January of 2017, Emmanuel Macron was speaking at Humboldt University in Germany. And he said, the Euro area is in a half-pregnant state. Now you can, you can think about what half-pregnancy means. Relationship without commitment, friends without benefits, you can have many metaphors over there. But essentially it goes back to what Thomas Wieser was saying that the incompleteness of the European single currency, so it, 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 Europe doesn't have a monetary union, it has a single currency. Uh, the incompleteness arises from the fundamental fact that it is a single currency of a confederation of states. Europe today is exactly like the United States was between 1776, War of Independence, and 1791, the Constitution. The Constitution in America in, 19, in 1791 created a federal government with the authority to tax and the coercive authority to collect those taxes. It then took another 170 years before a monetary union was created and another 90 years before a fiscal union was created. This is for a good reason. This is for a good reason. The, the nature of, of policy making always requires discretion. There is never policy making by rules. Every policy, even the gold standard, allowed for contingency and exceptions. And contingency and exceptions require trust. 
require a certain amount of judgment. And the question then is, if you have flexibility and contingency and judgment, who is to exercise it? That is the central question. And the centrality of that question becomes important because in a federation, there is a natural authority who exercises that discretion because that authority has political legitimacy. And if you do not have a politically legitimate authority to exercise discretion, a single currency will always fundamentally remain incomplete. It will always be the case, therefore, that there will never be a fiscal union, there will never be a banking union that's worth the name because common deposit insurance will not happen, because a capital market union also requires a harmonization of, of policies of such an extraordinary kind which harmonizes countries which have completely different traditions. A capital market union requires the elimination of political risk. And, and in a more sort of basic way, on a, the European Central Bank is not a normal central bank. It is the central bank of a confederation of states, of what Europeans call a Europe of nation states. As a result, all decision-making, right from the beginning, is prone to denial, delays, and half measures. You can, you can trace the pattern from the very beginning to even the most recent patterns. That is natural. The, 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 the one thing that Helmut Kohl understood about monetary union which he pressed was that if you have a divergent group of countries with a single currency, they will have different interests. There's nothing mysterious about it. And if they have different interests, so today, for example, just come back to today. Today, the real interest rate for Germany is negative one and a half percent. The real interest rate for uh, Italy is in the range of one to two percent. Carl Otto Pohl said in 1988 that a single currency will make the strong stronger, the weak weaker. Mickey Calder said this, Alan Walter said this, and that process, that process will inevitably continue. That can never, within the current framework, however much technological virtuosity we use, that will never change because it is inherent in a single currency that it will amplify the economic divergence and therefore it will deepen the political divisions. Thanks, Ashoka, very much for this, for this I think, somewhat provocative remarks, but, but you mentioned that, that the single currency, and let's use the term single currency, I mean, we will see what, what the others will, will say on that, will always drive divergence. I think there could be an agreement that until we don't have indeed a federal state with political legitimacy, uh, the euro area will always remain incomplete. But my short follow-up question to you, and again I will ask the other three panelists too, 
is that how serious the situation. So can we live with this incomplete euro or single currency or monetary union? Uh, or do you foresee that without measures that we can discuss later, about new further integration efforts, the euro is doomed, uh, or at least will lead to a persistently lower growth rate and continued divergence and a lot of social and political problems. So what's, what's your thinking on that? Look, the basic source of low growth, as, as Laurence also said, is within the nation state. I'm not claiming that the euro is the source of low growth. There are fundamental problems of education, technological change, which are at the level of the nation state. But what the euro does is it makes the weak weaker and the strong stronger. There is no, there is no, that is an analytical proposition that is so self-evident and repeatedly verified by the evidence. Therefore, to answer your question, will the eurozone muddle through in this, in this framework? And the answer result has to be that in some sense, the metaphor over here is that of a glacier. The glacier, the, 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 the scientists use the word carving, where small bits fall off uh, of the glacier. And the glacier does not necessarily crack, but there are nonlinearities. There is a certain point at which a large chunk can carve off, and at that moment you have a crisis. So will there be a crisis in the next six months? I don't know. And will there be a crisis in the next three years? I don't know. But what I can say is that the weak will continue to become weaker. And, the, and therefore, the risk that that weakness at some point metaphors, metamorphoses into an existential crisis will always be present. Now, Vitor, let me come to you, because you come from Portugal, which is probably among the weak countries. Uh, uh, so how do you, do you share this assessment that the euro makes the weak countries weaker and there is little hope against that? Well, I, I don't share that. I also don't share uh, the idea that uh, without the federation uh, there is no viable monetary union. Uh, and you see, Thomas, uh, extrapolating from your approach uh, with the difference between institutions and rules, you are saying either there is institutions meaning full integration and common policies, including in fiscal, or then there are very difficult rules, but we need institutions, uh, which is in the end converging with the idea that we would need a full-fledged federation. And I don't agree with that, uh, with that view. Uh, I, uh, I think that there are needed reforms uh, that I hope we have time to discuss a little bit uh, that can uh, indeed uh, um, mend, repair, improve the management of a monetary union in the present institutional framework. The idea, yes, the idea of uh, weak and weaker countries, I also do, do not share. That would lead us to a big, uh, more technical debate, which we could not have here, because your uh, idea is predicated on the view of the crucial role of the exchange rate 
in uh, the management of uh, our economies. And uh, you assume and you develop that in your book, uh, indeed, and we also had a small exchange of emails about it uh, at one point in time, uh, you have the view that uh, for countries with so, so many differences, uh, some strong, other weaker, the elimination of the exchange rate creates a huge uh, insurmountable problem. I don't share that view because if uh, we follow the way the world trade changed and the role of supply chains and other factors, we see in many academic papers that the role of the exchange rate has diminished in importance for the management of uh, our economies. Uh, for a, a, uh, yeah, there is a list of reasons. So the path through of changes in the, in the exchange rate is much smaller than it was 20 or 25 years ago. Um, that in many studies that uh, uh, are more encompassing of the variables that can explain behavior of the performance of the economy and performance of exports and imports, there are many other factors that now dominate the uh, uh, contribution of relative prices and real exchange rates. Uh, and that's why, for instance, if we take uh, the increase in exports since 1999 uh, 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 at constant prices, the best performer was indeed Germany, but the second one, to perhaps your uh, surprise, was Portugal in terms of dynamism, increase of exports cumulatively from 1999 until uh, 2018. And then comes Austria, Spain, uh, and below comes France, and then much below comes Greece and Italy. Uh, we have the same, you have the same sort of uh, view if we, you take the evolution of GDP per capita since the beginning of monetary union in terms, in real terms, or better still, in purchasing power parity terms, uh, you see that the two uh, countries that performed uh, worse than all the others, the big difference, are Italy and Greece, which have their own problems. So it was not euro, it was not the exchange rate, and so I don't subscribe to uh, uh, your view in that respect, that necessarily having the euro makes the weak countries weaker as an uh, absolute necessary result. The experience of my own country does not prove that. Spain the same, Ireland the same, and so on. So um, that is nevertheless uh, an introduction to what I hope we have time to discuss, which is how to improve some rules and some ways that monetary union works uh, in the field of uh, uh, fiscal stance and in the field of financial stability, meaning micro and macro uh, um, supervision policies in order to improve the way the monetary union can be more resilient and uh, uh, work more uh, efficiently. I would love to also have your views, but let me give the chance to Ashoka <coughs> to respond because I see a very strong disagreement yes, between, so, uh, between you two. I can be very quick on this. Uh, look, on the exchange rate, uh, 
uh, Victor, I don't know what studies you're looking at. There are two IMF studies, 2015, and one recently, which was co-authored by Gita Gopinath, who is the chief economist of the IMF, a well-known expert on international economics. The story is very clear. Exchange rates matter, exchange rate matter hugely. The European experience on that is also clear. Uh, in the crisis in 2007, 2008, three countries devalued enormously, Poland, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. The UK blew it up with unnecessary austerity, but Poland, the, the, the sharp depreciation of the Zloty was crucial to the stabilization of Poland. Remember, exchange rate is not a mechanism for long-term growth. An exchange rate depreciation is a bad thing because you make yourself poorer. You, in fact, you, you acknowledge that I will buy less of your products for what I supply to you. But an exchange rate depreciation is an extraordinarily important shock absorber. It's like saying, I'm going to drive a car without a shock absorber. Most of the time, you'll be fine. But some of the time, you'll be in such deep trouble that you want a shock absorber. And that is exactly the purpose of, of, a, of the exchange rate. As far as weak, weaker, and strong, stronger, we see that in the real interest rates, Victor. Germany... Okay, look, Germany is going through a very difficult period, but let's stipulate for now that Germany, even with its current weakness, is still the strongest economy in the Eurozone. Germany has a real interest rate of negative 1.5%. That negative 1.5% real interest rate in Germany gives it an enormous, uh, enormous uh, boost. Italy, which is the weakest, has a real interest rate of between plus one and two percent. Italy needs a real interest rate of negative three percent for it to come out of out of its of its growth or an extraordinary depreciation, neither of which it can have. So it is in a macroeconomic trap. So I think I think the evidence on this is is very simply very clear. Just on Portugal. On Portugal, you cited a, a data on exports, which I'm not familiar with. But I do know, and Olivier Blanchard has written extensively about this, that up until the crisis between 1999 and 2009, Portuguese per capita income did not grow. So I don't know what, what exports grew, but Portuguese per capita income did not grow for almost 20 years. So, uh, yeah. Well, you know, you'll have to debate this with Olivier. Okay, now, Lawrence and Thomas, would you jump into this discussion whether the euro makes the week even weaker? Yeah. <laughs> Countries and companies and institutions. Okay. Okay, I... There are so many things to answer, I don't know where to start, but I will start anyway. Um, first, perhaps, uh, let, me, let me jump on the exchange rate. First thing, let's just remind you that the unique currency was precisely designed to address the issue of France and Italy using extensively cyclical devaluation to offset more structural issues. 
Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is your right exchange rates matter. And the proof of the pudding is how powerful the first episode of QE that the ECB did um, in terms of exchange rate. And that was what kick-started again, I think, the recovery in the Eurozone beyond everything you've done to math, of course. Um, and, the, and the last thing I would like to say, we also have a lot of new research that's actually, uh, I think, should make us think harder about the role of the exchange rate, which is what Gita Gopina is doing at the IMF about because of most of the trade being actually uh, written in dollar, it's not as much of a buffer as we thought. So I think we have an exchange rate as economists, uh, and everybody here is a very bright one. We should have a view of exchange rate as a tool which should have evolved, and this one part of the monetary toolbox. That's one thing. The second thing is on I would like to come back to Germany as well, because I think if you, if you look at the precise situation today, Germany and Italy are undergoing a, a shock or their recovery is being delayed, which is quite similar. And if we were talking undisciplined people, hello. <laughs> So, fiscal policy has, as you all know, a cyclical allocation and redistribution function. On the cyclical side, when we look at the north of Europe, whose growth is actually today slowing down dramatically, where monetary policy has been stretched a lot, the question mark is why fiscal policy, which is precisely the national stabilization tool, is not being used more, and that's actually also true for the allocation side, both at the national and European level. We can all do public investment in the energy of tomorrow and in digital, and that's about network, so it's a Euro-wide concern. Um, and I think that has little to do with monetary policy too. In fact, monetary policy has paved the way for us to do that better. Um, and that brings me to what Thomas was saying about rules versus discretion. And there I agree with you, Vitor, that you know, it's not a binary position. It's not, if I put rules on zero and I go all the way to a scale of 10 on discretion, then in the European Monetary Union, we are not zero or 10. Each national country is supposed to have a fiscal space to adjust to specific shock. But if we want a euro stance, we can have an additional euro budget to actually get there. And by the way, wouldn't uh, Italy or another country feel less the urge to spend if there was this European little budget that would help with investment, not only for them, but for the rest of Europe. So I don't think it's that binary. I think the, if I say BICC, nobody remembers what it is, but there is a small embryo of budgetary for the euro area, which we need to make grow. Now, uh, Thomas, so, First of all, time is running, and I promise to give you ample time for questions and comments. 
And I would, so I would like to close our initial discussion relatively shortly. But also before closing that, I also would like to all of you to say what's your I mean, recommendation for, for the years to come. So what needs to be done to make the euro, either single currency or monetary union, function better? So Thomas, let's start with you, and then I would ask the other three panelists too, and then I will open the floor for all kinds of questions and comments. It's a pity we're running out of time. I would have had about an hour's, hour, hour's response to Ashoka. <laughs> Certainly you can also use no, a few just, minutes to respond I, I to some. I just think we need to take care that we don't uh, look at very recent episodes uh, of economic history and economic policy history and do some kind of linear in interpolation and say the strong get stronger and the weak get weaker. Uh, if you look at uh, a less recent episode after monetary union came into be uh, being, uh, Germany was the sick man of Europe. Uh, and it recovered by an internal devaluation, which did not come about by Hartz IV or anything like that, uh, but by uh, a concerted uh, 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 a pact between trade unions and employers, which resulted in flat real unit labor costs uh, for many, many, many years. And I remember Jean-Claude Trichet coming to each and every Eurogroup uh, and holding up charts of how real unit labor costs in Ireland, etc., were Portugal, Spain, Italy, uh, etc., were developing. And it was quite clear uh, that at that stage, uh, Germany uh, was a weak uh, contributor in, 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 uh, uh, to the Eurozone economy and was getting out of it. Much to be added on uh, why Italy uh, is in a weak position is that the result of the euro Every data shows that since the 80s, Italy has been growing a percentage point lower uh, than its uh, European confrere, and that was definitely not uh, the euro. So uh, I think we need to remember that a vast part of policies, as also uh, Vito and Lorenzo have been saying, uh, is in the hand of national governments. They can be right, they can be wrong. What we need to do is somehow achieve the political will and the political consensus to bring them together in a better manner than they often have had uh, in, in the past. Which is maybe part one of, part one of my uh, answer. Uh, so far, uh, monetary union, MU, uh, takes place, of course, in Frankfurt. There is a very strong knowledge about uh, the inner workings uh, of economic and monetary union in Brussels. But as you go out into capitals, as you talk to national politicians, to national parliamentarians, there is a total lack of comprehension uh, of what needs to be done in terms of policy, policy coordination to make the euro area work better. Uh, there is a total lack of comprehension in many member states on the part uh, of uh, uh, trade unions, employers, organizations, uh, and so forth. So there is a huge deficit in political communication, and it is necessary but not sufficient that finance ministers meet every four weeks uh, and do either the right uh, or the wrong thing. Second... Uh, I would talk of banking union, capital market union, in the sense of uh, having uh, 
cross-border banking, especially cross-border banking, take place as if it were in a national market. For that, we need to overcome considerable hurdles uh, to cross-border consolidation, uh, and we have to work peu a peu a peu uh, to towards completing uh, banking union. And that is something which is a much more realistic target uh, than talking about a fiscal union in the sense that there will be a share, uh, sharing of sovereignty or anything like that uh, in, in the course of our lifetime. That'll take a long time. So on, on fiscal, I think the real important thing is uh, to make the uh, rules more intelligible, more simple, and come to a kind of agreement on who exercises discretion uh, on, on applying them. How do, the, do we want totally inflexible rules as we have had in the past and somehow when things don't fit, devise new rules to fit reality? Or do we want to say uh, we want a much simpler set of rules and give, for example, to the Commission a higher degree of flexibility and discretion in applying them? So that's the kind of uh, discussion uh, that needs to be had. But the complexity of the whole exercise needs to, be, uh, needs to be reduced. So lots of other things, but I'm sure that others will contribute them. Thank you. Avshoka, so what, what needs to be done to somehow shore up the euro? So uh, just picking up on the last theme of uh, fiscal rules. Uh, so there are many, many, many people who have talked about this, but the person who got this completely right was Romana Prodi. Uh, it was what 19, uh, sorry, 2003, and he said the rules are stupid. And what Prodi meant by that, uh, the phrase is often co quoted. It, it was stupid. What, what he meant by that was that they are rigid, and that there should be flexibility. But what Prodi also meant was that he should have the flexibility to d decide how to, to, to implement them. And that is the fundamental question, always. Who will exercise that discretion and flexibility? The, the, the fact that the rules exist is an admission that there is no political authority that is going to be able to claim the legitimacy to exercise that discretion. The phrase intelligent rule implies intelligent flexibility, which implies a political legitimacy. So I don't think we should and then, you know, then there are the things like sanctions, that if you don't do X, Y, Z, we will sanction you. There's never a sanction. There's no sanction. There never has been a sanction. There never will be a sanction. And what's her name? Uh, Chancellor Merkel got this one right. When Schäuble was talking about, you know, sanctioning uh, for deviation from the rules, she said, that's idiotic. You're going to put a country that's already in crisis with a penalty on top of it. So my suggestion on this is get rid of the rules. The, the rules do not serve an economic function. I, 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 I disagree very vehemently with the proposition that a bad rule is better than no rule. A bad rule is worse than no rule because it, it either creates counter-cyclicality 
or it creates discretion and, and, and arbitrariness. And the person who got this right is, God bless him, Jean-Claude Juncker. You know, they say he has an extra drink every now and then, but at that moment, he has a, a, a clarity of mind that is remarkable. So when France was given, uh, given latitude in, 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 in its uh, uh, transgression of the SGP, somebody asked him, why is France getting special treatment? And he replied, because it is France. So, so the rules create political animosity and they do not serve an economic purpose. Get rid of the rules. I believe that Chancellor Merkel had this right also, that ultimately the only way to create fiscal discipline is to go back to a mechanism where there is debt restructuring and discipline from the financial markets. I know that this is anathema to a lot of people in, 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 in Europe, but that is fundamentally how the American Monetary Union existed before a fiscal union, and there is no alternative to that. I had one other sort of technical uh, suggestion at one point. I'm less, less sure of it. I had proposed following up on a suggestion by Franco Modigliani and Bob Solo in the late 90s that the ECB should have a dual mandate. And recently the ECB has itself reopened the question of a different mandate, including uh, whether the inflation target would be symmetrical or not. It's sort of beside the point at this point. The ECB has not been able to raise the interest, uh, inflation rate from 1% for almost six years at this point. The idea that it, inflation rate could go above 2% is interesting, but sort of irrelevant, because it, by my reading of the data, the inflation expectations have become de-anchored. And there's very little the ECB can do to, to raise inflation at this point. Therefore, on ECB, my recommendation is sort of less uh, uh, forceful. I think if, if there was a miracle and inflation reemerged, then a dual mandate would be still a good idea. But on the fiscal policy side, it's clear to me that the fiscal rules do damage and that ultimately the only way this could work is through some kind of market-based discipline. Many thanks, Ashoka, for this, some quite radical suggestions. Now, Vitor and Lawrence, I would like to ask to not to comment now, Ashoka, because then we will enter a debate yeah. which will last long. In the final round, yeah. each of you will have, but instead focus on also on your ideas. Yeah. What should be done for the euro area, especially on this macro-management issue that you raised in your sure. initial... Yeah, that's one of the uh, main uh, issues, is that there is no appropriate, adequate uh, policy mix uh, discussion and decision-making for the whole space of monetary union. And it does not require to solve this uh, full-fledged fiscal union or a European uh, institution in the field of uh, fiscal policy. There are things that have to be introduced to correct uh, what is the consequence of the present rules. Because in the first place, the, nothing is foreseen at the European level, because indeed fiscal policy is the competence of uh, national uh, member states, of, of member states. Uh, and there is a fiscal rule for 
the member states. And the fiscal rule, meaning the stability pact, is too much pro-cyclical. So as a result of this absence of anything at the European level, plus the nature of the fiscal rule for member states, the end result is a pro-cyclical fiscal policy permanently at the level of the monetary union. Nothing was more clear than this uh, uh, around 2011, 10-11, when the fiscal consolidation under the rules that were in place uh, led to the double dip of 2012 and 13, which has as the main explanation the simultaneous fiscal consolidation of all member countries at that time. No other advanced economy in the world had a second, uh, a double dip on growth as Europe had. Uh, so this has to be corrected. And the first thing that is necessary then is a stabilization function via a stabilization fund at the European level with sufficient resources, with borrowing capacity, uh, organizing transfers at uh, the linked with the fluctuations of the unemployment rate. To sum it up, as the IMF has proposed uh, in a working paper about uh, these rainy days uh, fund at the European level. That addresses one of the issues that was well identified from the beginning in the so-called optimal currency areas literature. Uh, which was a tool to respond to asymmetric shocks as a necessary tool for uh, uh, monetary integration. That is missing, and it's very important. Second, of course, the stability pact has to be revised. Unfortunately, there are now several proposals on the table that go, well, in the right direction. It's not fully what I would propose uh, completely, but I think that both the proposal uh, by the uh, note of the French Conseil d'Analyse Économique uh, uh, and even the proposal of the European uh, Fiscal Board uh, are good starting points for the revision of the Stability Pact. What they do is that they go for an expenditure rule, they then have certain objectives regarding long-term uh, uh, public debt ratio, uh, and get rid, then, of the uh, structural, structural deficit concept and many of the rules of the, president, of the present pact. So that's a good starting point. Both proposals, in my view, need uh, changes, but they are there and they should be considered. And then national fiscal rules uh, uh, as part of monetary union would not be as pro-cyclical as they are now. These two things are important. Of course, the European semester could be used to really discuss some attempts of coordinating fiscal stance of the different uh, member states, but it's hopeless because indeed it's national sovereignty and in the treaty these are uh, competences of the member states themselves. So it's the other two things that are uh, is essential uh, in, in, in this respect. The second thing that is needed uh, uh, is an European safe asset. An European safe asset without mutualization is very important for several objectives. The first one, which should appeal 
to the uh, um, Central European countries is that an European safe asset without mutualization is the only solution to the problem of the concentration of uh, uh, banks' portfolios on domestic sovereign debt. There is no other smooth solution to that uh, problem without an European safe asset to diversify in a mandatory way the uh, portfolio of uh, banks. And the third thing that would be uh, in my list of priorities would be uh, indeed the decision and implementation of EDIS as a very important symbol of what means banking union and the interdependencies that are behind the justification of banking union. So stabilization fund, European safe asset, EDIS would be my three priorities embedded, of course, in a, a broader description and justification of the type of reforms that I am envisaging, but uh, that I have no time to, uh, to develop. Lawrence, can you say in one minute which of the three you agree? <laughs> I will stick to one minute. Um, first, on monetary policy, I actually don't disagree that a review is necessary. Last time was 2003. Since then, a lot of things have changed. Uh, the mandate is not up to the ECB, but the monetary policy framework is. On the fiscal side, uh, I think what you propose is only possible if there is already a fiscal common budget, because we can only let country default, like in the US, if there is a buffer of federal spending. So it's going around in circle, and I'm in favor of adding a euro budget for the sake of designing a euro stance and investing in the future. And one thing I would add is there's a whole new stream of economics looking at perception, trust, confidence, which is something we've mentioned a lot here. And I think the EU has a sort of unique opportunity in the short term to leverage on this. Um, whether or not the Brexit is soft or hard, there will be sectors affected in Europe. It will be agriculture, it will be electronic equipment, it will likely be chemicals. Because the value chain of this sector is integrated throughout European countries. So at the aggregate, the impact may be small, but for some sectors, it will be a huge shock, either because they export to the UK or because they build up machine together. For example, a German car has more than 15% of input coming from other European countries. So if there is a shock which is common to all your area country, do we have the European um, capacity to address it? And the answer is yes. And Bruegel actually has mentioned it in different circumstances in the past. Uh, and there are two tools. One is the European Fund for Adjustment to Globalization, which admittedly is very small and very complicated to use. And the other one is the European Social Fund, which is much, much bigger and much simpler to use. And if the EU is able to react to a Brexit shock by protecting the sectors and the workers on the European continent from this shock with EU money, then I think in terms of confidence restored into the EU, we'll have made a gigantic step. 
Thank, thanks very much also for some very concrete suggestions for, for the near term. Now, let me open the floor for, for questions and comments. So if you would like to ask uh, a question or raise a comment, please raise your hand. I would like to, to briefly introduce yourself and also try to keep your comment or question very short so that we can give more people the chance to talk. Maybe we'd start with, with Eric over there. Right, I'm Eric Nielsen at Unicredit. So I, I, I'm, I'm very flattered, working for a bank, I'm very flattered by, by your suggestion that you don't need rules because the financial market will do the disciplining, but it's an illusion, right? Inside a, inside a currency union, we saw it in Italy, we've seen other places, the way the market reacts to things they don't like is to sell very aggressively the bonds of the sovereign and thereby imposing de facto a tightening on policies. When Britain did something stupid, like Brexit, you sell the currency, you don't sell the guilt. And that gets, in your book, should give some stimulus to Britain. It didn't actually, because as you talked about, in countries that's well-developed, we know well that the currency doesn't really work that well. All, it, all the weaker pound did was to push up inflation and take real income down for the Brits. Exports have not expanded more than global trade since. Turkey did actually. So when the Turks did something bad and you had the lira depreciation, you have now a faster recovery than people expected. So my point is, you cannot get away with the need for rules or institutions. You pick one of the two. The financial markets cannot be relied upon. Flattering as it is, cannot be relied upon to do the job for policymakers because we are way too aggressive and it overshoots when we see things. And inside a currency union, as I said, you hit the, 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 the sovereign debt and thereby becoming pro-cyclical instead of being cushioning if you did it in the exchange market. Thank you. Then there's a question on the, on the back. Okay. Can we get the, the uh -huh. next mic here? Can you bring the next mic? Uh, thank you. I'm Ioannis uh, Tirkidis from Cyprus. I have a few brief comments. Uh, one is about bank resolutions, one about exchange rates, and about um, um, trading and uh, uh, problems with the, with, the, with the Eurozone. Now, about the, the bank resolutions, uh, we have a case of a bail-in in the Eurozone. It's in Cyprus. But the case in which we resolved two banks, one bank in 2013, um, I'm making this as, as a point of, uh, of fact, not raising any um, big issues. So we have a case in which the, biggest, the second biggest bank of the, of the country was resolved by Beilin, was forced to merge with the biggest bank of the country, and in 2018 we had the second resolution of the bank, the third biggest by 2013 numbers. That was done orderly, without a Beilin, but with a bailout, for the record. Now, the other point is the exchange rates. The exchange rates matters, but not for every country in the same way. If you are an importer, in a big way, and your exports are mostly services, then you can adjust your prices if you're a, a, a price taker and go away with the impacts of not valuation. But for the big economies, that's a different story, right? If you're an industrial exporter, the exchange rate is important. Now, if you don't have the exchange tool in your hands, then the issue becomes one of how to adjust and adjusting by wage by, by the wage route, the talent valuation, is always politically slippery. And it has some limits as to how much 
and to what extent uh, and for how long you can do it. So here we need more um, innovations in terms of, of, of tools how to adjust internally. Uh, we can turn it to trading policies because fundamentally the problem in the Eurozone is one of trade. We have 18, 19 countries with different productivities, right? And they are lacking in their export uh, successes. And that creates problems which show up in trade balances, in debt build-ups, and debt crisis, eventually. Um, now, looking into the solutions we've had for the past 10 years, with the, the, the ECB has been instrumental. But don't forget the fact that when you acquire one-third of your country's debt, then your bond market is dead. So the tools in the hands of the ECB today are not there. Okay, thank you. George Sapari. Thank you. George Sapari, Hungary. Ashoka, you had two points um, against the euro. One was that different levels of, different levels of development, sorry, different levels of development. Um, now, think of uh, Italy having lira. The difference between northern Italy and uh, Mezzogiorno in the south will not, will not disappear. So that differences exist even within countries, even within Germany. Your second, yeah, your second point was uh, it's a, uh, exchange rate is a shock absorber. It's a shock absorber, but if you look at what happened in Europe so far, it, the shocks were domestic made. Even when you had the subprime problem coming from outside, it affected the people who did not, or the countries who did not have uh, strong fiscal policy or had too, much, too many uh, toxic assets. So basically it was a domestic, domestic uh, <clears throat> uh, shock. So uh, now, I've, what I say is that you can follow good and bad policies within and without the European Union. If you follow bad policies, it's better if you are out, it's better for the uh, monetary union because we do, you don't have the Greek type of problems and it's better for the country also because indeed it has more um, more um, uh, instruments to deal with it including the exchange rate but following bad policies cannot be a goal so you want to follow good policies and if you follow good policies then the question is does the euro help you to follow good policies and I say yes look at Portugal but look at the Baltic countries. How, you know, they were very much uh, affected by the subprime loan, very, very much, um, <clears throat> uh, because they had a big, uh, big credit expansion. Um, when Jolt and I, we were working on a, uh, on a 10 year uh, project for the European Union, and then I mentioned Latvia, Barry Eichengreen, he said, This is Argentina. Well, where is Argentina and where is now Latvia? And Latvia joined the euro. And they joined in where it was still, the per capita income was still below what it was prior to the, uh, prior to the, um, <clears throat> um, uh, the, the subprime uh, uh, <clears throat> crisis. So what I'm saying is euro, being a member of the euro actually can help people now forced to be, to follow good policy. 
Here you are, the, the, the Austrian uh, hard currency policy. It's the same thing. Now, the last thought is that what's the alternative between 1990 and 1990, no, between 1970 and 1991, uh, there were 19 exchange rate adjustments within Europe. 19. Do we want to go back to that? Thank you. Francesco, please, briefly, if possible. Yes, Francesco Abadia from Bruegel. I would like to test uh, the audacity uh, of uh, the panel members, possibly including the moderator. I mean, a common theme of the first part was incomplete, incomplete euro. Now, put a number on that. Uh, how much incomplete is it with respect to 100% fully-fledged, uh, complete monetary, uh, monetary union? Um, I was um, audacious enough to put the 70% number some time ago. Um, maybe I would now go for 60. Um, but what's your number if you, if you are uh, brave enough? Thank you. And there was a very last, I saw a hand over there from a gentleman who, who may, have, may have left. Is someone else? Okay, there's another gentleman. This is the law. Or maybe that. that um, hello, Marta Pilati, European Policy Center. Um, I like very much where all of this is going with the adjustment fund uh, stabilization mechanism, as if, and now even a 60% uh, quote. But the bottom line, I think, is how do you get the member states to actually take this money out of their pocket and put it in the common bunch? Uh, which we have seen is something that has happened only in the very worst case scenario. So how do you suggest you actually convince the member state to pull money together to make this happen? Thanks. Can you ask your question in 30 seconds? Okay, then the, the very last one is from here. So my, my question is the same then. Minis Magis, which was, by the way, I'm Miguel Otero from Del Cano Institute in Madrid. Uh, Minis Magis, which was, can you have a capital markets union without a safe asset? And can you have a safe asset without fiscal mutualization? Because at the end of the day, the old proposals that I've seen, when they are not mutualizing, they don't include the possibility of an exit of a member state. So then, then it, it is not safe because safe assets usually are safe because you have the backing of the taxpayer. So that would be the question. So thanks very much for all these very diverse and well-made questions and comments. And I ask the impossible task of the panel to try to respond very, very briefly. So maybe two minutes at most for each of you. Um, Ashoka, why don't you start? So, uh Look, uh, whether uh, markets discipline or not is an interesting question, but it still remains the case that you can never, you can never create sensible fiscal rules. Fiscal rules will always be either pro-cyclical or they will be arbitrary. You, there, is, there is no halfway house over there. And to think that there is one 
is an illusion. There are lots of suggestions, even from my panel here and also from this audience, on variations of a fiscal union, uh, common deposit insurance, unemployment insurance, safe asset. As the gentleman there quite rightly said, that just think where a safe asset exists. A safe asset exists within the United States. Why? Because it's backed by the sovereign full faith and credit of the US government. Safe asset exists in India, for Indians in rupees. So a safe asset is by definition associated with the nation state. To have a safe asset with, which, which has a, a international character backed by promises which cannot have, be backed by commitment is not a safe asset. So I say that, that seeking solutions where we have repeatedly seen that those solutions do not work. The, the, the recent example, I was having this discussion in Sweden just a few months ago on the Hanseatic League. When, when you want a fiscal union and you say, look, we want a fiscal union, it's eminently desirable, we can all agree in this room that the Eurozone needs a fiscal union. So you have to ask yourself the question, when something so eminently desirable has not happened for 50, 60 years, the notion of a fiscal union was discussed in the Werner Committee report in 1970. And every time it comes up, it does not happen. Why does it not happen? Because there are embedded conflicts of interest. And those embedded conflicts of interest do not go away. In fact, they become worse over time. Because as there is a secular slowdown in growth, the sense of scarcity and the sense of antagonism increases. Therefore, the fact that a fiscal union or call it deposit insurance, or call it unemployment insurance, or call it safe asset, the fact that it does not happen, has not happened in the past, ipso facto means it will not happen in the future. And therefore, the notion that you can somehow finesse the fiscal rules or create something that has the look and feel of a fiscal union will not work. Therefore, when you rule out the impossible, you're left with only something that seems even more impossible, and that's why I suggest maybe market discipline. If you say that doesn't work, then believe me, we are all screwed. Thank you. Vitor, you can respond to whatever comments you would like to. Yes, uh, of course. Um, well, let me go back very briefly to the exchange rate because there were uh, two questions about it. Uh, it's a uh, too technical issue. I just want to underline that there is enough recent literature about the decrease uh, efficiency of exchange rate fluctuations in terms of price pass-through, in terms of relative prices, uh, and so on. And indeed, if we look to the experience, during the uh, uh, monetary union, we see, for instance, that the 
export shares, both in total exports of the EU and in world exports, the uh, export shares of Portugal, Spain, Ireland have been stable throughout this period, in spite of the fluctuations in competitiveness of these countries that lost real exchange rate at the beginning and then corrected afterwards, in spite of that stability. And you find also published by the ECB uh, several uh, working papers showing this diminishing role of exchange rates. So it's a debate to continue, uh, I'm sure. Even the very recent publication of the external sector report by the AMF has a feature about some reduction of the efficiency of the exchange rate in the world economy. Some yes, some reduction, yes. Uh, even the, uh, the IMF has that. So, and there is, as I say, other, uh, many other academic papers. So, uh, on, the, um, on how much complete, I would take your number, 70%, yes, I would take your number. Uh, I, I hadn't thought about that at all, so, but uh, it's within the range I would, uh, I would put it. Regarding the, stability fund, the stabilization fund, why countries uh, would uh, be willing to participate, well, it's the result of two things. First, the proposal of the IMF uh, about the uh, stabilization fund uh, that they propose, they show by simulations and uh, backward analysis that all countries at a certain point in time would benefit from such a fund. So it was not a permanent uh, um, direction to the same countries all along. And then, of course, that had, had to be kept if that would be the case. No permanent transfers would be allowed under an appropriate concept of such a stabilization fund. So the IMF provides these uh, evidence. And then we have to consider the other thing, which is the important point about the whole idea of a monetary union. It's a collective endeavor. It links the countries in the fundamental way. And it's very difficult, as we all know, now to uh, go back in time and uh, unscramble the whole monetary union. Uh, that would be uh, indeed a nightmare. So it's the interest of all countries to have a smoother functioning and more efficient functioning of monetary union. And this is a, a, a very fundamental thing because the initial concept was too minimal, too narrow. It was, I, am, uh, I have used a caricature to characterize what uh, was the initial uh, concept, which was as if we had organized in Europe a very big uh, uh, currency board where many peripheral countries were adhering to an ersatz of the Deutsche Mark. Uh, it's not that a monetary union. Uh, and as we realized with the crisis, and then that response had to be organized uh, in a hurry. So it's a collective endeavor, and that's why the stabilization fund would be very important. Finally, on safe assets and the market discipline. Yeah, there are no safe assets 100% anywhere. All countries can be downgraded in terms of credit risk. Even the US was downgraded by, by uh, S&P, uh, and so on. So it's a matter of degrees, of course and we can have a really a much, much safer uh, European asset without mutualization. And my uh, preferred proposal is the one that is organized about degrees of subordination of the remaining of national debt 
after a layer of European securities is issued by a European entity. So that is possible. And market discipline to finalize, meaning debt restructuring in the end, that already exists because in the treaty, intergovernmental treaty, about the ESM, it is clearly stated that no assistance, no loans can be given to any country if a debt sustainability analysis proves that uh, the debt of that country is not sustainable. So it is already in the rules that ultimately debt restructuring is something that is foreseen, contemplated in the present rules. And that has been reinforced by the decision last December that this debt sustainability analysis will be done not just by the Commission as it was before, but now as a joint venture between the Commission and the ESM itself, which is a body which has not institutionally any degree of independence comparable with the Commission, so much more dependence, dependent on the credit estates. So that indeed already is in, in the rules, that possibility that in the end, if uh, indeed the country deviates too much with fiscal uh, laxity, it can have to contemplate, even before any assistance, a debt restructuring. Many thanks, Lawrence. Very quickly, some final thoughts, including your number to Francesco's question. Mm -hmm. The question Francesco asked is political, and I'm an economist, so I will skip it. <laughs> um, I will just focus on the dollar versus the euro and the safe assets. Um, so the exorbitant role of the dollar, where does it come from? It's used by 300 and more consumer. The, the amount of dollar assets on financial markets, trade, and the strength of banks, if I oversimplify. Where's the difference with Europe? The amount of consumers roughly the same. Trade, we should be it should be proportionate, and we shouldn't have uh, to use the dollar so much, especially when we are 300 and plus million consumer. So I think it has to do a lot with banks and what has been said on banking union and, and with the safe asset issue. Banking union, I think we've talked enough about it. Safe asset, um, Frankly, I think we can't escape mutualization, whether it's because we issue a euro bond or because we construct mutualization. But why would the financial market believe in a safe asset that is not supported by the states of the euro escaped me? So I think we need some mutualization. Thank you. Thomas, last but not least, please. Well, you know, the, the one of the difficulties in discussing these issues is that many people uh, have this uh, ideal picture uh, of perfectly working markets uh, in their head. And uh, if you can't organize yourself like the, like the large internal market of the United States, you ain't working and you're doomed to failure. And I think that's utterly untrue. Uh, in, in the case of fiscal, uh, I. I agree uh, with what Eric was saying, uh, but it's, it's quite simple. Uh, you need a set of rules, and uh, the rules have worked to the extent uh, that fiscal behavior, fiscal policies were better 
than they would have been had there not been the rules. The question is, can we produce rules that make a better outcome? Can we produce rules that will produce the fiscal policies of the United States? For God's sake, no. Uh, but that's uh, something that, especially at present, is deeply unde undesirable. We need something that produces better outcomes and not optimal outcomes. Same thing goes for capital market union. Uh, does capital market union uh, function without a fully mutualized safe asset? It can be much better than functioning than it is at present. There are uh, quite a number of suggestions on how to produce a safe asset, and some of them work pretty well even without full mutualization. So voila. Uh, uh, just to reinforce my final point, uh, those that say that life is terrible and we're all doomed to failure because within a few years we cannot produce the perfect drawing board solution of a perfectly working economy, that's not how the world works. We simply need to work on getting better and better and converging uh, towards a higher level uh, of intelligent integration uh, that respects the constitutional constraints uh, that we have uh, and that moves us forward. I think it's quite, uh, quite simple. So uh, the, the perfect, to put it differently, the perfect is the enemy of the better. Okay. <clears throat> I have to say I very much enjoyed this discussion, not least because there's a major disagreement, not just on the diagnosis, but also on what to do. Abolish rules, keep the rules, rule didn't work, rules had some impact, need cyclical stabilization, safe asset works without mutualization, doesn't work. So I think there were many different views. So I cannot summarize key conclusions from this session, but it was not the goal. The goal was to discuss, and I think we we managed to discuss quite well, at least I very much uh, enjoyed. So my last task is to ask to all of you to help to thank all the panelists for their very excellent contributions. Thank you very much.